0: Thank you, Aaron. It is always good to hear you sing. We are continuing our series this morning in Isaiah. We are in chapter 40 today, so if you'll be finding Isaiah chapter 40, we'll be looking at the first 11 verses. Now, when someone is hurting or in a crisis, we instinctively want to try and comfort them. The crisis may be a marriage on the brink of divorce or the loss of a job. The crisis might be the loss of life. That is, someone we know and love, someone who is close to us, has lost a loved one in their family, and we want to bring them comfort. But how do we do that? What can we do to help? Well, the usual answer is that we should pray for them. And certainly there is nothing wrong with that. And as Christians, we ought to do that. In fact, it is the most powerful thing we can do. And yet, instinctively, we often want to do more, something more tangible, something to express our love. And so we take food to the house. Many of you did that this week for the Lovern family, which are all here this morning. It is great to see you guys. And so many of you took food to them this week as an expression of your love for them and as a way to express your comfort. Sometimes we don't know what to say, and so bringing a dish says it for us. In fact, that's why people don't like to go to funerals or visitations, because They're afraid of what they might say and don't know what to say. They're afraid that in their time of trying to bring comfort, they may come across like Job's friends who came to Job in his time of crisis to bring comfort, and they did not do that. But in those situations, it is not so much a a word fitly spoken as it is our presence. The fact that you cared enough to come in the midst of someone's grief is in itself a comfort, which is another reason why COVID has been so difficult on many people, because we have been unable in many cases to do that. Many families are opting not to have visitations before a funeral because of the virus, and so they are not receiving the comfort from friends and family that they would have in the past. You may remember we finished last year with a series on the biblical crises We looked at six different crises in the Bible, and we did so for two basic reasons. Number one, we wanted to examine the crisis itself because we are in the midst of our own crisis. And number two, we wanted to look at how God delivered the people from that crisis. What we did not do during that series is look at how to find comfort in the midst of our crisis. And so that is what we are going to do this morning. We are going to see that part of the comfort that we have in the midst of a crisis is the promise that God gives us for the future, and yet there is much more to it than just that. It has been said that a preacher's job is twofold, to disturb the comfortable and to comfort the disturbed. So if you are comfortable, that is, perhaps you're apathetic or you're lethargic in your faith, it is my task as a preacher to stir you up. On the other hand, if you are in the midst of discomfort, it is my task to bring you comfort. And that is what we are going to focus on this morning from the Word of God. So look with me at Isaiah chapter 40 as we look at comfort in crisis. Isaiah 40 verse 1, comfort, comfort my people says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Verse 6, a voice cries, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd, he will gather the lamb lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Well, if you've been with us throughout this series, you know that we've not looked at every passage of scripture. We've looked at some, but you will recognize chapter 40 as being vastly different from everything we've looked at before. There is such a dramatic change from the first 39 chapters when we turn the page to chapter 40 because for 39 chapters, Isaiah has been proclaiming a message of judgment, a message that God is going to come and God is going to destroy their cities and deport them to a foreign land because of their sin of idolatry. In fact, look back at the last verse of chapter 39. Because chapter 39 ends with Isaiah telling Hezekiah that all of this is going to happen. And look at the strange response from Hezekiah. Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. What a strange response. Isaiah has just told him, that everything Hezekiah has as a king will be destroyed and his people will be deported. Most scholars believe that he is not stating here a statement like, well, the Lord's word is good. Instead, what he is making is a very selfish profession. That is, well, as long as things are peaceful and good in my own day, who cares what happens after I'm gone? And then the change in in chapter 40 from judgment to hope is so dramatic that some actually conclude that this is the work of a second Isaiah. I don't want to confuse you this morning, but there are scholars who believe that this book is divided up into two, if not three. Some actually say there is a third Isaiah. But the message changes changes so drastically here that they say it must be the work of a second Isaiah. Author. But the real reason they say that is because of the timing. You see, for 39 chapters, Isaiah has been talking about the present. Now, we've looked at some of the future aspects of that. He's talked about the future, but when I say present, I mean he's been talking to the people in their present circumstances. But now, in chapter 40, he is talking about what's going to happen to them nearly 100 years in the future a time in which Isaiah will not be alive. And he is so specific in his predictions that many then conclude that it could not have been stated by him so many years previous. But isn't that the task, at least in part, of a prophet? A prophet is supposed to talk about, in many respects, what is going to happen in the future, to prophesy. And all of his predictions do, in fact, come true. So we do not conclude that this is the work of a second Isaiah. We instead conclude that all of this is from the prophet Isaiah. In fact, if you go to the New Testament, I told you in the first week that this is the most often quoted book in the New Testament. And if you go to the New Testament, Jesus and others quote all aspects of Isaiah, including chapter 40 that we're looking at this morning, and they attribute all of it to the prophet Isaiah. So this is not the work of a second Isaiah. This comes from the same Isaiah, but the message has drastically changed. Now again, if you've been with us, you know we've been bouncing back and forth like we've been at a tennis match. We've been in the present, we've gone to the future, and we've come back to the present. Well, now we're sort of in the middle. And what I mean by that is this. For the people who are hearing Isaiah's words, for them, it is in the future. But for us, It is obviously in the past, and yet we're going to see that there's some future elements to this, all of which should lead us to some present application. So this passage of Scripture is nicely divided up into four sections. The first section is the first two verses where we find God's people are comforted. We're talking about comfort in crisis, and this begins with God's people being comforted. And after all that has transpired, after all those 39 chapters of judgment and destruction and deportation, these words that open chapter 40 must have been music to their ears. Comfort, comfort, he says. And then in verse 2, he says, speak tenderly to my people. Rather than the harsh tones of judgment they had come to respect, the tone has now changed. Now think back to our sermon series on that crisis of destruction in Jerusalem. A a city that God dwelt. This was not just a city. This was not just their home. This was the city in which God dwelt. This is the city that housed the temple where God's presence was. And that is why they believed that nothing could ever happen to that city. And yet now they find that it has been destroyed. And so what we have is a defeated, disillusioned, and disappointed people of God. And in their mind, there's only two answers. Either God has forsaken them, or God is not the God of the nations. He cannot be the God of the nations if another nation with other gods have conquered them. So in their minds, that is the only, that, those are the only two options. God has forsaken us, or God is not the God we thought he was. Now, we know that neither one of those are true. We know that God allowed their destruction because of their own sin, something they had been told repeatedly. But it is often so much easier to blame God, which is also something we are very good at. So in the midst of, of this doubt In their midst of their thinking that they'd been forsaken, comes these words of comfort. And notice the terminology. He still says, this is my people, and I am your God. God had not forsaken them. God had judged them. There's no doubt about that. But God had not forsaken them, and God will not forsake you in the midst of your crisis. I remind you that Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And in the conclusion to what we call the Great Commission, he says, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In fact, far from being forsaken, God wants to reiterate to them that they are not forsaken. Instead, they are forgiven. And that is why they can have comfort. They have been pardoned. Their sins have been covered. Now, we might be tempted to conclude that God declares their sins forgiven because of all that they have suffered. And in fact, if you, if you read it there, it, it seems to say that, that because they have suffered so greatly, God declares their sins forgiven. And that is what plenty of people in our own day still believe, that somehow our own suffering, our own discipline can somehow atone for our sins. But that is simply a more spiritual version of work salvation. Genuine salvation has always been, not through our own suffering, but through the suffering and death of Christ. It has not come about by our own discipline, but by what Christ has done for us. So it has always been and always will be by grace. And so it is here. It is God's grace declaring that they are forgiven not the amount of suffering that they had endured. This is the mercy of God, which is incredible to think about given how upset and angry God was with them over their idolatry and how much he punished them and judged them as a result. And yet, he is still a God of mercy. People still continue to say that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. They say the God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment who is angry with his people, and the God of the New Testament is loving and kind. But here we find in the Old Testament one among many examples of a God who is merciful and gracious. Paul in 2 Corinthians says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort." So, what Paul was saying in principle to the Corinthians, we are seeing lived out in Isaiah as the God of mercy and comfort comes to his people in their time of crisis with a message of comfort. So, how can you and I be comforted in the midst of our own crisis? By being reminded that God is a merciful God who has graciously forgiven us of all of our sins. And the Bible tells us that is the greatest gift of all. Well, let's move to the second section. In this section, we will see that God's glory is coming. How can I be comforted in the midst of crisis? I can be comforted because God's glory is coming. And here is yet another reminder of how a future promise ought to impact our present lives. There is in verse 3 a voice crying out in the wilderness We'll see the same thing in verse 6. But whose voice is this? Well, the natural answer would be Isaiah's. Or we could expand upon it and say it's not only Isaiah, but it is the other prophets as well who are proclaiming the same message. Ultimately, our text does not tell us. But it does remind us, because the voice is is vague it reminds us that the message is more important than the messenger we have a saying when we when we deliver bad news to someone we sometimes say now don't shoot the messenger and what that means is i'm just giving you information it's not my fault i didn't do it i'm just relaying the information to you now here of course the message is positive but the same thing applies it is not so much the messenger that we are to be concerned with here, but the message itself. However, in another sense, the, message, the messenger is very important, especially to us. You see, you may find yourself saying, you know what, this, this, this verse sounds, sounds somewhat familiar. I mean, I feel like I know this verse from somewhere. And yet I also know I haven't overly read Isaiah, so it's probably not from Isaiah. So where do I know this verse from? You know it from the gospels because every single gospel all four gospels in the new testament attribute this voice crying in the wilderness to john the baptist he was the voice who came prior to christ who was preparing the way for the lord and his method of preparation was proclaiming repentance from sin and faith toward jesus christ which is ultimately the way for any of us to be prepared for the return of Christ or your appointment with him after death. Now, I told you last week that we would find some similar terminology here, and we do. Last week from chapter 35, we saw a way or a highway of holiness. And we said that pictured all of the saints coming to Zion. Uh, And they were all holy because it said nothing unholy would be on that way. Here we, hear, we see it called the way of the Lord. And while the terminology is similar, the image is different. The picture here is not of saints on a highway. The picture here is the clearing of the way for the return of Christ. Something that would have been done in ancient times for the arrival of a dignitary. I mean, we still do it today. Suppose the president decided he was going to make a visit to Knoxville. Now, this is not a political statement. I'm not interested in whether you would go attend that event or whether you'd be happy that he was coming to Knoxville or not. That's not the point. But just suppose that he decides he's going to come for a visit to our city. There would be an awful lot of preparations ahead of time, wouldn't there? I mean, they would block streets downtown, they would close off certain streets, they would make sure that the path to wherever he was going was clear, there would be tons of security, there would simply be a lot of preparation for the arrival of a president. I remember years ago, we were in New Orleans for the Southern Baptist Convention, Uh, my whole family was with me. And Lauren and I went out uh, early evening to get sandwiches for the kids so that they could eat in the hotel and then Tracy and I could go out for a nice dinner. That's that's good parenting, isn't it? I mean, just get them a sandwich and then we're going out for something nice. So Lauren and I went out to get those sandwiches and take them back to the hotel. And there were motorcycle policemen everywhere. They were parked on the sides of the streets and they were just sitting there. And so I I wondered what was going on. And so I asked one of the guys, I was like, what is taking place? Why are there so many policemen here? And he said that the vice president is about to come through here. And that's what they were there for. And sure enough, after we got the sandwich, we were walking back to the hotel and we had to stop and the vice presidential motorcade came through. We had a similar experience years later in Indianapolis where we just stumbled upon another uh, vice presidential motorcade. So that's the scene here. The scene here in our text is a dignitary coming, and the obstacles along the way have been removed. The hindrances have been cast aside. He's not talking about the literal removing of mountains. He's not talking about the literal paving over of potholes in the road. That's not what this is about at all. This is about preparation for the coming of Christ, And again, for us, that means repentance from sin and faith toward Christ. And as we'll see at the close, also our responsibility to share that with others. So when that day comes, the glory of God will be revealed to all. Now, we talked about that last week, so I'm not going to go over it again today. I will simply remind you that the glory of God is, in essence, the very presence of God. That is God becoming visible. So he will display his presence to us in an unparalleled fashion that all will see. This revealing of God's glory is one of the major themes of Isaiah, which is why we've seen it multiple times. Now, I also want you to understand that just because it says everyone will see the glory of God does not mean that everyone will then be saved. It is similar to Jesus' statement in the New Testament where he says, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess." That doesn't mean suddenly everybody's going to be saved. It simply means that everyone will finally realize that God is the true and everlasting God. All right, so the third section. How can I find comfort in crisis? Verses 6 through 8. I can find comfort because God's promise will stand. We have another voice now, but this one is a little clearer. This one is clearly Isaiah, who is instructed to cry, and therefore he wants to know what it is he is to cry. And there's a lot of similarity here between this and chapter 6, which is Isaiah's call, which is another reason why some people say this is a, a parallel, so this is a second Isaiah, but again, we don't, we don't hold to that. So this section is why I chose this text, or why what, this, these particular verses is what, why I chose Isaiah 40. When I started this series, I said, we're not doing every verse. We're going to pick and choose. And my criteria for picking and choosing were two things. Number one, I hadn't preached from it before, so we hadn't looked at it in previous sermons. And number two, I tried to pick verses that were familiar to us. That is, if we've read Isaiah before, we might have remembered these. And so there is this famous verse, verse 8, "'The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.'" And this is one of those verses that if you are a memorizer of scripture, this is one of those verses that you might have memorized. Now there is nothing wrong with memorizing scripture. Obviously it is a very good thing. The Bible says we are to hide God's word in our heart so that we will not sin against God. So memorization of scripture is a good thing, but it does come with some, with some obstacles. That is, when we memorize scripture, inherently we are memorizing it out of context because we're not memorizing large sections of scripture, we are simply memorizing a verse of scripture. So we have to be very careful that we're not taking a verse out of context. Now that's not really the case here with this verse for it does tell us that God's word will stand the test of time, his promises will be fulfilled and his word will remain forever. Something Jesus himself affirmed when he said heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So the permanent status of God's word and all the promises that it contains is a biblical truth both here in Isaiah and beyond. But what you might miss by memorizing verse 8 rather than knowing the context is the comparison that is being made this message is a comparison between the fleeting nature of mankind and the permanent status of god's promise comparing god comparing man to grass is the image we find here and it is an image that is found elsewhere as well james compares us in his epistle to grass and as a result he says why are you so focused on material things i mean if your life is so fleeting why are you focused on riches? Peter does the same thing in his epistle, and he expands on it in a more general sense, and basically says, if life is so fleeting, why are you so focused on it anyway when your spiritual life ought to be the most important? So again, we are familiar with verse 8, perhaps because we've memorized it, or pe- perhaps because of the imagery we find in the New Testament. Now, it doesn't feel like it this morning, but spring is just around the corner very soon we're going to have warmer temperatures we're going to be enjoying the the sun and the warmth and one of the things i like about spring is the way my yard looks the way my grass looks in the spring i mean it's that deep green and it comes in very thick the only problem with how thick my yard is in the spring is i have to usually cut it twice a week and then i usually have to rake up some of the the grass as well because it's so thick and I'm proud of my grass in the spring. I mean, when I'm cutting the grass, there, there's a sense of pride in how good my yard looks. Now, if you've ever been in my neighborhood, my yard will never compare to Kevin Chadwell's and uh, Morgan Gorenflow, both of whom are members of this church, whose yards are just spectacular. I'll never get to that level. I'm several steps below that. But my yard looks good in the spring. And yet, even when I'm cutting it in the spring, I know that summer's coming. And you know what happens when summer comes? It gets hot, it gets dry, I have a sprinkler system, I try to watch the weather, I try to water my yard, but it just doesn't work. No matter how much I water, the grass thins out, the grass dies, and my yard looks awful. And so when I'm cutting into the summertime, I get discouraged. I mean, I'm cutting going, what happened to that lush grass that was here just a few months ago? That's why grass is such a beautiful picture of what it means to be a man or a woman. It is an analogy of the transient nature of our lives, here today and gone tomorrow. And we don't have to guess at this analogy because verse 7 says, Surely the people are grass. And that's the part we might miss if we merely memorize verse 8. If we just start with verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, We think that's a a truth of nature, and it is, but he's not talking about grass and flowers. He's talking about you and I and how fleeting our life is. But the comparison to the Word of God then is that the Word of God remains. And so in the context of Babylonian captivity that Isaiah is talking about, this is a promise that one day God will deliver them and bring them back home. Though they are certainly doubting in the, in the midst of it, though they are discouraged at their circumstances, God's promise has not changed. Circumstances, no matter how difficult, no matter how confusing, do not override the promises that we find in God's Word. Now, as always, we must make sure that we are correctly interpreting a promise for what it says and that it applies to us. Otherwise, we might take a promise that was not meant for us, apply it to our lives, and when it is not fulfilled, we become even more discouraged than we already are. But if it is truly a promise that applies to us, we can be sure that it will come to pass, though the timing may not be to our liking. So we are comforted in the present because we know God's promise will stand. His word will not return void, but will accomplish that which he desires." And his word contains an abundance of promises, both for our present and our future. Listen to Psalm 119 in verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promises give me life. Your promises give me life. All right, number four, how do we find comfort in crisis? We find comfort in crisis, verses 9 through 11, because God's presence is powerful. You see in verse 10 that God comes with might, and then the image after that is his arm ruling, and the arm is a symbol of his strength in action. And of course, they would have seen his power in destroying their cities and sending them into deportation for their sins, but in the future, they're going to see that same power in his ability to bring them back and to care for them. Now, we don't often associate power with tender care. But that's what we find here. Verse 11 gives us some more familiar terminology. And it is in itself a comfort. The shepherd tending his sheep was certainly a well-known image throughout Israel. And therefore, it painted an accurate picture for their culture. I mean, as far back as Joseph and his brothers going down into Egypt, we learned that they were shepherds. That was their occupation. And the care that a shepherd has for his sheep If you know anything about sheep, they're not the brightest of animals. That's why they need so much care. But the the shepherd's care for his sheep is an image that recurs in both Testaments. Without a doubt, the most well-known psalm, Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And that psalm goes on to talk about the protection and the provision, among other things, that the shepherd brings for his sheep to comfort them in their time of crisis. Jesus used the same imagery. One of his I am statements in John's gospel, I am the good shepherd. And I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, and they follow my voice, and they follow me. It's the same idea here. Again, look at the image in verse 11, the words there. He tends, he gathers, he carries All imagery used to speak of an intimate relationship that the shepherd has with his sheep and then he gently leads the young. The overabundance of terminology here speaks of God's care for us as his children. He is going to come in power but his presence will not overpower his people. Instead we will experience God as a compassionate and comforting shepherd who will wipe away all of our tears. And while much of that must ultimately wait for its complete fulfillment in the future, we can certainly know part of it now as we find him to be a compassionate father who comforts his children. Which leads us then to two points of application. One of them is found in our text. The other I'm admittedly importing into our text. First, we are to proclaim the comforting God to others. Verse 9 says that we are to get up on a high mountain and herald the news. Lift up your voice and herald the good news. This is not a command reserved for Isaiah. We cannot merely sit back and enjoy the comfort of God. It is our responsibility, having been comforted by God, to proclaim that comfort to others that they might have the same experience. When something good happens to us, we inherently want to share it. I have never had a hole-in-one other than in putt-putt, and that doesn't count. But I've never had a hole-in-one playing golf. I've come close, but I've never had one. But I will promise you this. If I ever have one, you are going to hear about it. (laughs) Probably multiple times. We had a church member a couple of weeks ago, H.A. Loy, who had his first hole-in-one in his 80s. And many of us who play golf with him have heard about it, and rightfully so. Because we want to share something exciting that has happened to us. Now if we're willing to share about a golf shot or some event that has happened in our lives, surely we ought to also share with others that God has been a comfort to us and he can be a comfort to them as well. God who has comforted us in Christ by redeeming us from our sins and reconciling us to the Father who comforts us in our times of crisis. And we are in a world filled with crisis. So we ought to share that with others. Then secondly, and again, I'm importing this one, we need to comfort others. I quoted to you earlier from 2 Corinthians where Paul said that God is our Father and is a Father of mercy and comfort. The very next verse says this, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. So Paul says, yes, God is a God of comfort who comforts us in all of our afflictions. But one of the reasons, and this goes back to that great question that we debate in Christianity, why does God allow suffering for his people? Well, one of the reasons is so that we might find God to be a God of comfort. And so that then we would comfort those who are likewise suffering. Having found God to be a comfort, We are to comfort others. So don't waste your suffering. Rest in the comfort of God and then allow God to use you to bring comfort to others. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of comfort. A Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Who comforts us in all our afflictions. Lord, we pray that we would know your comfort. And having known it, that we would seek to share it with others and tell them that they can find comfort in you and that we might be a source of comfort to those who are in crisis. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.